Hi, welcome. Today I'm joined by James Dama in person here in Austin. We're doing a post Tesla AI day um, review and reaction. Um, this is going to be actually two parts. So this interview will be more of a general kind of thoughts about the day, answering some questions. And then tomorrow we're going to do more of a deep technical dive into the technicals, um, diving to each part of AI day. So anyways, James, I want to welcome you um, on the show again. It's great to see you in person. Thanks. Likewise. It's been a while. Yeah, yeah, I love these in-person interviews. A lot more, yeah. I don't know, information or dynamic. So your opinion about that has shifted a little bit since yeah. the first time we do it. Yeah, I definitely prefer it. Um, so, James, the last time I saw you were at AI Day. I briefly got to meet you after to get some reactions. But mm -hmm. how was your, maybe take a step back, how was your overall kind of experience at AI Day? Wow, it was uh, kind of overwhelming <laughs> to be honest. Yeah, it's right? like a Tesla event is, yeah. It, there was so many, there were so many people I wanted to talk to and, um, there was like so much stuff to absorb and I feel like I just got sort of a taste of, of it. So that's yeah. my first impression. The other, uh, was that they are, they really, Obviously, you know, there's only so much that you can, you know, that they can that they can show in an event that that's only a couple hours long. But they, I feel like they're diving more into technical stuff. They're 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 showing us more about what they're doing, and yeah. it's nice to get a sense of sort of you know how they structure the program, how many people are involved, yeah. you know, how things evolve over time. And I felt like the opportunity to talk to some employees was really nice. I really enjoyed yeah. that. So thanks a lot to Martin for <laughs> inviting me. It was it was really yeah. great. Yeah, I thought that was like the, high, I mean, the presentation itself, I thought was better online because the, the audio mm -hmm. was better inside the auditorium is kind of hard. Yeah. Um, but yeah. the highlight was the the tables and the booths around yeah. the whole, you know, uh, seating area where you got to meet all the teams and people and see how they're kind of, yeah, how they're structuring their, yeah. you know, everything. And it was cool. It's like asking them what they're doing, what their role is. and. Yeah. Um, right well, show and tell. Yeah, they have some yeah stuff on the all tables. the monitors yeah. and stuff. Did you meet any um, interesting people and interesting employees? Or? Lots. Oh, yeah. really? Everybody I talked to was really interesting and fun, cool. and I got a little bit out of them. Like mm -hmm. I said, I, I, yeah. I, uh, I, you know, I wanted to literally talk to everybody at every booth. Like I didn't see a booth that yeah. I didn't want to talk to, so I just like went down to one end. And when I first got there, I went to like the robot actuators and stuff because those guys were there, and that was something I was interested in. And uh, got a, a chance to chat with them for a little while. And then the presentation started. And uh, then afterwards, I was just like, man, I've only got two hours. You know, I've got to. And uh, I started at one end of the booths and I, uh, I got like maybe a quarter of the way through or something. Yeah, I feel like yeah. some, I, did, I didn't even get to talk to anybody on Dojo for the most part because yeah. they were at the other yeah. end. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so overall, let's take a step back. What was kind of maybe your key or one of your key overall impressions takeaway, like pre-AI day and post-AI day, how are you looking at Tesla's AI efforts differently? Hmm. I, I would say more than differently, more like kind of a refinement. There were, mm -hmm. uh, going into AI day, you know, there were lots of different ways I could imagine that they were doing stuff inside. And I feel like that's kind of narrowed down. And of course that, that introduces new questions, right? Because mm -hmm. now you're, you're not thinking as much about broader things. Um, the, I would say my biggest impression uh, sort of shift is that uh, is my perception of how Tesla is just like generally going at the uh, the this like that it it's less about them having a vision for what the end game is and going straight to it and it's more about um, like having an idea for what the road is but 
getting something working now and then rapidly iterating on it, which, you know, that was something I was sort of aware of before, but I'm much more, it's, it's, it's a much more concrete uh, component of my sense of how Tesla is, uh, is going at, N not just this problem, I mean, other problems yeah. also. Yeah. Now I've, I've been reframing a lot of my, you know, understanding of what they've done in the history in these terms. And, and it kind of resonates with, with a lot of stuff, them getting a product out there, mm -hmm. uh, getting something that, you know, that, that gets them something concrete to work on and then iterating rapidly to yeah. sort of, you know, uh, you know, in the direction that they think the product needs to go, but they want, they don't want to spend a lot of time thinking about stuff and then do something after two years of thinking. They want to, you know, what's the closest thing we could build today mm -hmm. that is an approximation to what we want? And let's use that as a platform. And now let's, let's iterate to get to where we want to go. Yeah. I mean, I was thinking back to 2019, that was kind of the first almost AI day. They called it autonomy day. Mm. But um, the things that they presented there and also updated last year, it, it really seems like Tesla's executing on what they're saying they're doing. Like, for example, back then, I think Carpathia was talking about kind of, you know, 3D rendering, the beginnings, the potential of that. Mm -hmm. And it was very early on. But fast forward to last week, you see them spending a huge amount of effort and compute on occupancy networks and also on auto labeling. Like these things three years ago, they were just like, you know, just ideas that were, mm. they're hoping to get to. But now fast forward a few years, like they're doing this at scale. Yeah. Um, so this is impressive. Like I think these early updates by Tesla, um, it really sh gives credibility that you could review and rewind and watch their previous, you know, presentations to see if they're really executing on what they're, what they promise. And yeah, it's uh, quite impressive. I think. Um, yeah. Scale is another, uh, I mean, and you sort of understand their scale in the abstract, just like you understand in the abstract, we only see three, four, five people in front. Mm -hmm. uh, they brought a lot more engineers out this time. So you get yeah. more of a feel of like the depth of the team. Um, you know, we know, you know, in the abstract, there are, there are a significant number of people out there, but then you see them mm -hmm. or you, I mean, looking at the actuators, like, you know, I, I know that Tesla's got the capacity to design these things, but then I actually look at the actuators, like sitting on the table and mm -hmm. I'm thinking, man, you know, uh, you know, they did this in six months. They like, they've done so much in six months. Like the pace is, is, mm -hmm. is really crazy. I'm actually, uh, and, and the, the, uh, I, I think I said g going into this, we, we talked about mm -hmm. and other people have said it, that, mm -hmm. that it's easy to not be impressed uh, when you look at kind of a clunky robot sort of moving around. And, but the, the flip side is like they did this robot from scratch in, yeah. I don't know, nine months or something like that. And just getting the mechanicals in that kind of time for, with custom actuators, that's yeah. another thing. I mean, the, the Bumble was a lot of off-the-shelf components, but... The, the second generation thing, like they're 3D printing the components to go into those motors. Like that's from scratch designs on these things. Just designing an actuator in like six months is like a huge, and then they did a bunch of them and they did all the structural analysis for the body to decide what they were going to do on this stuff. They probably went through a bunch of designs and narrowed it down. They did all of these, you know, computer studies of what they needed to do. Like it's just a yeah. really impressively large amount of work that they've done in this yeah. window of time. Yeah. So what I want to do is um, I want to break it down. We'll first go into the Tesla bot Optimus, um, answer some questions from people from Twitter, and then go into FSD and Dojo. Um, and then 
Um, we'll try to do maybe a separate episode on uh, Tesla removing the ultrasonics, and we'll try to put that out maybe first or something. Um, and that these uh, this up this full episode later. So Tesla, let's go to actuators. So mm-hmm. I know we've talked about this, and you've kept on bringing up this point that um, for robots to really take the next big leap, someone like Tesla needs to build custom actuators at mm-hmm. scale. Um, so were you? kind of satisfied with Tesla's efforts that they showed with actuators? And was that what you were expecting them to do? It, so it's, yeah, more or less. That, I mean, the actuators we eventually need, the reason we need a company like Tesla to do something like this, to do a really clean sheet, and this is why, you know, when you asked me, I said, like, you know, I'd like to see them do a humanoid robot. Yeah. Because there are a lot of really core technologies to make a really good, like the final humanoid robot, the one that we see in five years, the one that we see in 10 years, that are going to be need a clean sheet rethink. Uh, or they're going to need a lot of iteration from where we are to get down uh, to where that is. And to, to do that in a reasonable amount of time, you need a company that moves really fast on that kind of stuff. They're not going to look to, oh, what kind of business model could we build around what we can build off the shelf today? And then mm-hmm. let's work really hard on our business model and making money and that kind of stuff. It, more, you know, they're just really focused on the engineering, like either doing the end design or iterating to get there rapidly. So there's there's a lot of potential in actuators that we're not seeing yet today. I think the stuff that they're showing is a great start. Like it uh, starting from... It, you know, if you're going to try to do the minimum vial product and you want to have something working in a year, you have to do something that you can get working and get into some level of production in a year. And, you know, the sen- the actuator that we're going to be able to do in 10 years, well, you can't do that in a year. So you have to do something mm-hmm. before then. And I'm pretty happy with what I saw. The specs are pretty impressive. I mean, they're getting... They're getting a lot of power density. They're getting, you know, good speed. You know, I mean, the the stuff that I saw looks like it's it's got the potential to to make a, a really useful mm-hmm. starter robot. Say. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, it's interesting because the Bumble C, um, I guess that is kind of the I would say the an old generation kind of what maybe a standard type of robotics effort would do with off-the-shelf components but this new version of optimus it's like completely redesigned it seems like from tesla's custom actuators and everything what kind of um, improvements do you expect from let's say the bumble c robot let's say next year at tesla ai day what do you think this new optimus that they at least the framework that they showed um last week with the robot like what do you think that it'll be capable of doing in one year? Well, so a big caveat on this is that is that the capabilities are all entirely software limited right now. Like both of these bodies, if you had arbitrarily good software, like if you took Bumble and you spent years and years iterating on software, or if we had a really mature uh, sort of humanoid software suite that was out there already that they could mm-hmm. build on, then then you know, we would have seen a graceful Bumble C moving around and, you know, it wouldn't have been as, as scary to like take it off the tether the first time. Its ability to manipulate things in the environment, to understand where it's at, like all those would have been much more sophisticated. Robotics, like there's a hardware component to this and there's a software component. There are a lot of people working on the software component, mostly research labs, but also some industrial labs are working on that stuff, a, a humanoid robot in particular. Um, and that is 
in like in it's going to take longer to do a really good job with that than it is going to take to do the hardware. I think for Tesla to do the hardware, because I think we could see, you know, five years from now, I think we will be, you know, Tesla has the capacity to build a really compelling, a really useful, really, you know, performant robot that's reliable and can be manufactured at low cost and high volume. Um, I think they have the hardware skills to get that. The software is harder to predict because it requires, you know, for lack of a better term, breakthroughs, mm -hmm. right? We have to get up a number of humps that, you know, might happen tomorrow, might happen in six months. And one of the interesting things that go that's going on in neural networks and deep learning right now is that you get, we, we see these phase transitions where somebody figures out the right way to mm -hmm. approach a particular problem with neural networks. And then in the span of two years, the whole field just completely changes. I mean, we saw AlphaFold did this. We saw AlphaGo do this. Uh, language models did that. Recently, we're seeing like stable diffusion, these other, you know, language uh, versus image models doing this. So there are a number of those that could occur in the robotics field or that could occur in the self-driving field. And if we get one of those phase transitions, then all of our expectations for the software, well, we can pull those in by years. And if they don't happen, you know, then if they keep sort of incrementally iterating on the approach that they're doing right now, well, you get there, but you get there on more of a, a slower yeah. glide path. The hardware, I feel like doesn't take it's more iterative engineering, you know, analysis. And the, what we've seen with the cars, right? The, I mean, we've seen some super clever things with the cars, like the casting. That's great. You know, that's a really great sort of out-of-the-box thinking kind of thing. Although, you know, Sandy Monroe wouldn't tell you that people have been talking about it for a long time. It's not a novel idea, but they actually went out and did it. But most of what we see, like in what they did in the motors, you know, they didn't come up with a radical new motor design. They took existing motors and they refined them and polished them and, you know, uh, just – and you you do eventually start getting next level performance, but you get it step by step as you go there. And I think that's what we see with the robot bodies over time. They're going to iterate on the robot bodies and we're going to see refinement. Um, I'm pretty happy with the number of degrees of freedom that mm -hmm. they – like the, the core design. They stuck with the envelope of a human body. Mm -hmm. That's great. It'll, it makes it much more reasonable to drop into human tasks. It makes it a lot more reasonable for a human being to visualize a task, to understand how to instruct a robot to do this thing because they take what they would do with their own body and then get the robot to do that, which, mm -hmm. you know, if robots have radically different shapes, that's, that's a tougher thing to do. So they stuck with that. They put enough degrees of freedom on it to actually do a good job of mimicking general human motion. And the, the range of motion that they put on the joints and whatnot, you know, similarly, yeah. they, uh, it also seems like they're, they're doing a decent job of providing sort of like speed and torque and force capacities are roughly in line with a human being. Like they're, you know, the fact that they got that on their second try, like that, that's pretty good. That's a good sign that they can go in the future. We could see more degrees of freedom, more refinement to what's going on. I would especially like to see yeah. more, uh, uh, degrees of freedom and control in the hands for dexterity and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, for for manipulating relatively large objects, I feel like, you know, they can do that right now. But uh, the hand they have right now, it's not going to pick up a soldering iron and solder a circuit board. You know, there's going to be stuff that it's just not well suited mm -hmm. to. Sure. So for hardware, so, okay, so you're saying the hardware side is more predictable in mm -hmm. terms of the improvements because it's engineering, it's incremental. Um, the software side is dependent on how fast the maybe the the field of yes. AI progresses, especially with yeah. maybe um, images, video, 
you know, neural radiant fields, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, so with the hardware side, um, with what they showed at AI Day, the second version of Optimus, um, do you think they're not, do you think that Optimus, if they show it next year, you know, will not be limited by hardware constraints, meaning it'll be basically a um, software limited in the sense that hardware wise, it could do all the, the motions that, you know, Tesla is saying it'll be able to do. It's just that how well it, it can do it depends on the brain, right? Yeah. Um, is that kind of your assessment of, and then yeah. year, every year just gets incrementally better, right? As they yeah. iterate on that. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, you'll see simplification, you'll see in- improvements in robustness. I, from time to time, we'll probably see them like, oh, you know, we should have done this joint this way. Mm-hmm. Or here's a thing that we could do that would trade off a bunch of parts for one other simpler part that we could do where you'll see kind of architectural adjustments to what's going on. And it's possible, you know, that they that they have, uh, there, there are lots of small decisions that you make about, you know, how you're going to approach uh, uh, creating a joint on a robot to get, you know, the range and power and reliability and, that and uh, it wouldn't be that surprising to see some of these things kind of change. But I'm sort of expecting that we're going to see iterative changes to the robot body without like you know, uh, any any big uh, you know steps away yeah. from that. But the, so, that said, software is totally the limiter. Mm. Um, if you had you know the perfect software for uh, the V2 robot that they had today, you know it it'd be playing basketball, you know, it wouldn't be barely trying to walk around on a stage. Um, The, I mean, software, Mm. we're really far away from what the software will eventually be able to do. We're not nearly as far away on the, on the basics of building uh, a robot that whose mechanicals can do, you know, basic human stuff like, you know, carrying boxes around a factory. Like we can do the hardware on that. I think Tesla basically has the hardware to be able to do that. Like the V2 robot that they showed us, there's all kinds of basic tasks that the hardware is completely appropriate for in a factory right now. But the software, probably not super close right now. So would you say over time, um, Tesla's advantage with the AI robot will be on the software side? Over. Because it seems like initially mm. with the h- hardware, they do have an advantage because they're doing custom, you know, actuators and custom design, mm. uh, manufacturing at scale. So they've got a cost advantage, a performance advantage. But over time, would you say that other engineering efforts could, you know, replicate, duplicate that? They might not have the economies of scale yet, but at least mm. it'll be easier to replicate than the brain side because the brain side seems like it's immensely more complex than the hardware? It's, uh, there are different ways of thinking about the relative advantages that Tesla has in this space and how the external environment might evolve. Mm. I think, you know, it's, Tesla definitely has a big advantage in the hardware because of how, of their approach to building hardware. Um, you know, they, they put a lot of resources at it. They're very engineering heavy. They think a lot. They're manufacturing first. Uh, like Tesla's, the potential for Tesla to get to scale on a useful humanoid robot uh, before anybody else really can, I think that there's a very high potential for Tesla to do that. And 
barring some other, you know, large, well-resourced entity deciding that they want to go head to head on this thing and really pour a lot of resources into it, I'd be kind of surprised if, if somebody else can match Tesla for the robot they want to build, right? You could see other people building robots that are, they have a different performance envelope or different target applications and getting there faster for whatever reasons. Like, you know, if you have some very small volume, super precise robot that you want instead, sure, it's it, Tesla may not be well suited to some of those applications. In software, um, Tesla's strength is, you know, I use the FSD program as kind of a guide for thinking about Tesla's relative strengths and relative weaknesses. Um, FSD is, for the most part, if you look at the core technologies that go into the software, there are things that other people pioneered and developed. Uh, and then Tesla adapted them, inserted them into their system, understood how they worked and didn't work, how they applied, and then they iteratively refined them, integrated them with other things. Um, because of the their pace, like how how fast they want to move, I think Tesla has a big advantage. I also think they're you know small you know low communication overhead teams of people putting a lot of time. Like that's a organizationally, that's a way to iterate quickly on these kinds of things and, you know, figure out what you want to build and then build it. Yeah. Um, the, a lot of people will interpret the software that Tesla's doing as like stuff that they're getting from other people and kind of cobbling together, right? And there's a way in which that's kind of true. There are some things that they're doing that seem completely novel to this, that language of lanes thing, like that mm -hmm. came out of left field. Like, I don't know if there are precedents for other entities trying to use a language model to solve something, uh, which is kind of a spatial problem, uh, aside from, you know, some, you know, the straightforward vision transformers. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if there are people doing it. I don't know if anybody had this particular, like that was one of a thing that I thought was really innovative and creative. And if Tesla did invent that, like kudos to them, that's a great piece of tech, but they didn't invent nerfs. They didn't invent occupancy networks. They didn't invent, you know, the convolutional networks or, mm -hmm. They have, when I was still looking at what they were doing in convolutional networks for the camera stacks, you could see them adopt just something right off the shelf that somebody else was doing. And then you could see them start playing with, let's make it wider, let's make it deeper, let's change the number of neurons in this layer, let's, uh, let's try a variation on this block they have and run it in parallel, you know, sort of, you know, yeah. sort of incrementally extending the architecture. Eventually, you get to something which is which might be quite different from what anybody else is doing. But you're not doing it by having a bunch of PhDs sitting in a room doing math, trying to figure out from first principles, and then doing a ton of experiments to prove out a new technique. They're definitely taking tried and true stuff, for the most part, putting it together, and then iterating on it to get it to work as well as reasonable with yeah. a comfortable dose of completely novel stuff yeah. that they're putting in. I mean, I would say that... One of the key factors is the speed at which they're taking the stuff in research mm. and putting it into actual shipping product, mm. but at scale. You know, they're not waiting five years yes. for it to be mature. They're they're taking ideas that that are the building blocks, but um, I think also building scale. They're, they're having to, you know, uh, invent. Maybe not like the foundational like you know ideas, but they're having to build all the things that requ are required for scale. You know, um, all the QA, all the testing, all, mm -hmm. all the the storage and compute, and that's like a huge piece of the puzzle, I think. Um, and 
I think that's one of the unique things it seems like Tesla is doing is how the the time frame between which the stuff comes out, occupancy networks come out in research, and then they implement it and then go crazy at scale. Mm-hmm. You know, and so I mean that that's kind of one of the most fascinating parts of Tesla's AI. I think for me, it, it, the it's it's really impressive, like how short the gap is between a completely novel idea comes out and you see Tesla has integrated it into a product. I suspect they must have, you know, a significant number. And in fact, I suspect one of Carpathy's uh, tasks when he was there was like, you know, find papers that seem like they have something useful, get a prototype, play with it, you know, try to understand what the implications of this new technique are. Is it something we should adopt? And when, as I was you know, previously I was describing there's kind of this difference between the hardware and the software where the software is much more dependent on developments in the outside world. So you want to be paying really close attention to that. You want to adopt it as quickly because there are, you know, there's this constant stream of these developments that come out that 10x some core capability that you really care about. And you want to identify that as quickly as possible and get it, not just because you're in a hurry, because you don't want to waste a lot of time doing the wrong thing. Like however you're doing it, if there's a better way and it's not the way you're doing it right now, well, all the effort you're putting into doing it the wrong way is just lost. You're just going to throw that away anyway. Um, Yeah, it's pretty, it it reminds me a little bit of this uh, Elon once commented on uh, sort of uh, battery developments mm-hmm. uh, on, and with, with Tesla. And he said, you know, we have a group of people and they follow basically all the battery developments. And, you know, we rank them on a scale of one to five about how likely they are to be useful, like how, how much we should be paying attention to it. I can imagine there's a similar kind of structure looking at other people's software innovations, mm-hmm. other people's neural network innovations. And, and you know, We'll keep an, let's keep an eye on this one. Let's try to get this one integrated. These, this one down here we can ignore, you know, putting them in bins and then have a team that tracks those over time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one example of Tesla moving fast with AI is kind of um, human labeling, porting over to auto labeling. Mm-hmm. It's just like, it seems like a couple of years ago, Tesla, yeah. you know, was making this big investment in human labeling, like mm-hmm. a thousand plus labelers, all this stuff. And then the blink of an eye, right? A couple of years later, mm-hmm. it's like, the whole approach has shifted, right, to to this massive auto labeling approach with videos, um, almost self, yeah, labeling. And it's just that the speed of which Tesla decided to, you know, move away from I, I would say move away, but to emphasize more auto labeling is just, yeah. Um, yeah, it's impressive. The scale and the degree of refinement that they've managed to get to on the auto labeling effort this quickly is super impressive. The, the multi-route thing, I, I find uh, really, you know, so they, yeah. you know, they have a piece of ground and, d- you know, lots of Teslas drive across it over time. And they take the observations from all of these and each additional car that drives through this set of things provides them with a new set of observations. And they can add that to the bag of observations that they have for this intersection, this roadway or whatnot to... Each one of them refines, you know, like you get that much more accurate where the curb is, where the sign is, uh, what the lane markings actually are. You get to see it in all these different con- – and so they, you know, having a bunch of cars drive through it and then from from having a lot of cars dr- uh, drive through a route, you decide what the ground truth is. And then you take that ground truth from those and you push it back to uh, to all of the samples that went into that, that go into your database. So. Mm-hmm. 
you know, every time, you know, the number of cars that's driven through an important intersection in San Francisco doubles, they can just take that data, dump it into the model they already have. It gets that much better and then push it out to all the, not just the new samples, but all the old samples to relabel them. So the labels, even on existing samples can mm-hmm. be refined and improved over yeah. time. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that multi I thought that was one of, I was, I don't know if it's per se novel, but it's very creative use of crowdsourcing data real time to quickly improve, you know, the ground truth, but also using that to create simulation of, let's say, mm-hmm. San Francisco quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, like, what's your take on that? I mean, to me, it seems pretty impressive that they could um, crowdsource the data quickly, you know, not just use it for ground truth for the cars, but also have a second route of simulation where now you're having more data that you could, you know, feedback into the system. Yeah. Um, what's your kind of take on that? The, the synergy is great. You know, they've got this ability to grab data and then they've got this simulation capability mm-hmm. and using, being able to take your fleet data and use it in your simulation and then generate output that feeds back into training for the fleet. That's, mm-hmm. it's pretty cool that they, there's there's some interesting synergies that I hadn't expected. Yeah. I was surprised to see them trying to use nerfs to, like initially, I didn't understand what the what the incentive was for using nerfs to generate because uh, I so I see now to jump to the end that what Ashok once would like to see they described this as his weekend project he's been working mm-hmm. on for a while uh, is to to basically uh, have the system be able to generate. Uh, a supervision signal that can be fed back into the cameras from the intermediate results that you're calculating from the ground truth and whatnot. And so that's what the nerfs kind of close the loop on training. In uh, So if you were to want to train end to end, you want to uh, be able to uh, understand what the in- in what the internal representation representation should be based on the output signals directly that the camera uh, sees. Right up until pretty recently, uh, I mean, the nerfs give a Tesla the potential for closing the loop and essentially, uh, uh, you know, taking camera inputs, uh, train, running them through a neural network to the internal representation that you want to be able to drive the car, and then pushing that farther through the nerfs back to what the cameras should be seeing, right? Mm-hmm. So then you can compare what comes out of the nerfs to what went into the cameras mm-hmm. and you can close the loop. The thing about closing the loop is now all the other stuff becomes unnecessary. You can just grab tons and tons and tons of video from the real world. You run it through because the output, once you yeah. run through the whole thing, if you get the camera output back out, you've got a really simple way to just compare what Got went it. in to what went in. So this is how language models Interesting. Work, right? So it basically trains itself because yeah. the camera output is the It's self-supervised. Yeah, it's, it's self-supervised. So whatever, mm-hmm. the, the nurse will predict what the 3D or, you know, scene is, but the the cameras will basically train it, you know, of what it should be seen. Um, so, okay. So this is, this is interesting. So mm-hmm. let's talk, I want to, I mean, tomorrow we'll go into more of the slides and technical, but I think this... This idea of the occupancy networks um, and nerfs, um, a lot of people are interested in. Um, they want maybe a, a, a clearer, more simpler explanation. Um, so let's take a step back. So from what I'm seeing is Tesla's kind of has simplified some of their AI structure where it seems like a lot of it is going through occupancy networks and auto labeling. Like that's 
they, they pointed those are the two kind of things that a lot of their data will, will go into before planning. Um, with occupancy networks, my understanding that is basically this um, coarse volumetric kind of representation of, of the 3D space around. Um, the, and also they could track the, the velocity and direction of these objects moving. But um, my understanding from AI Day was that it's not f detailed enough to um, make like maybe um, specific, like it's not detailed enough to, to, to rely completely on for planning. And so they'll take the core, the course data and then they'll hone in on different parts of the scene to get a more accurate representation and then make decisions off of that. But it seems like what nerves are these neural radiant fields and, you know, the, this kind of ongoing development, it will allow the cameras to not go to a volumetric kind of these, you know, voxel coarse things, but actually go to a, a really detailed 3D like representation of each object in the whole, you know, scene. Um, and it seems like that is what, I mean, Ashok mentioned it at the kind of the end, but it seems like that could be the next big kind of jump, next big area for Tesla. If they can actually go from camera to not just a course, you know, voxel, whatever representation, but actually go to a detailed 3D um, scene where it's actually accurate and they understand every object, what it is and where it's moving. It seems like that could be the holy grail of, of FSD. I mean, am I, is this like, I mean, what can you, what kind of feedback and what kind of things can you kind of input into the, all this? Um, so the first time, I think, the first time they presented NERFs at the, uh, I can't remember, I guess Ashok has talked about them at the CVPR that he did. And then uh, I think they touched on them briefly at the previous AI day, but I'm not certain about that. I was a little confused about the, the NERF thing. Um, so um, internal to the software, you need to at some point create a representation of the environment, which is which your planning software can use to make decisions. Mm -hmm. And so perception is basically building this internal representation. They've looked at a couple of different ways of, they've gone through this cycle of doing that a couple of different ways. In the beginning, they just had camera view, you know, this is a car, this is the drivable space, and the planning network tried to work with that. And they got a certain level of success and it wasn't good enough. And so at some point they go to the bird's eye view as a way of, because they're in particular, they're finding that the cameras are having problems with depth near horizons and stuff. So the bird's eye view is a way to get all the cameras to cooperate, to give you something where the layout around the car makes more sense. And as soon as, once you have a bird's eye view, sort of all of a sudden the planning gets a lot easier. You've kind of got this 2D map, like a video game or something. And the planner can look at that and make decisions about that car is going to cross my path. This one is stopped. You know, I'm far enough from this curb when I do my turn, like all of those spatial based decisions. Um, of course, you know, when it's 2D, you don't have a lot of height things that you need. So vo so going to a voxel sort of, you know, volumetric approach, that makes a lot of sense. And they initially did that with bag of points. And then they had a downstream algorithm that was, you know, this is when uh, Elon was commenting on the bag of points and when they started using GPTs to, die to consume those instead of C code, 
uh, I forget when he was talking about that was sometime in the last year, like that was a topic that had come up. And he was talking about how much better the GPTs are, these transformer-based neural networks that are trained, uh, it's a generatively pre-trained neural networks, that they were better at consuming this giant bag of points and turning it into actional information. And once again, it's to create a set of perceptions that the planner can easily digest. The planner has a pretty difficult job. It has to anticipate all the possible future evolutions of the situation that you're in and decide what the best course of action is to, to pursue your goal. So you, uh, you want to distill that down to the smallest number of most abstract, uh, the, you know, highest representational power. Like a car, you can imagine seeing a car as a bunch of voxels. Or you can see, imagine understanding a car is, that's a Chevy Blazer moving 40 miles an hour in this direction. That's a higher abstraction, and it's easier to make decisions based on. Uh, so they started, they tried to go to the Chevy Blazer right in the beginning, and in the 2D camera view, it wasn't good enough. And then when they in, when they went to the 3D top-down view, the you now you kind of have voxels, right? That kind of falls out of the bird's eye view because you're drawing a grid and deciding what's at every point inside the grid. But now you have a piece of software that has to consume a bunch of voxels and turn it into Chevy Blazer so that you can make a decision about that truck. Um, that was inefficient and it had accuracy limitations. They went to a neural network to consume that. To, so now they got a neural network taking the output of that giant bag of points and making the Chevy Blazer. But then they had issues with static objects and stuff. Like, what do you do with a pile of dirt? Like, how do you categorize a pile of dirt? Everyone is a different shape. Um, so they had to have the uh, occupancy grid, essentially, to deal with all the objects you don't have categories for in the world. And after they'd been working on it for a while, they realized that was actually a really good way to do the Chevy Blazer too. So now the Chevy Blazer goes back to being voxels or whatever, kind of in a sense. But now they now at that point, they, they have already developed the GPTs that can take the voxels and turn it into Chevy Blazer or stop sign or whatever the deal is. And that's sort of the evolution mm. that we've seen. They've got this intermediate product, which they're currently calling – occupancy network is kind of an interesting term. Occupancy network, it actually refers to the neural network and not to the data, the representation. And I think previously I said, let's, let's, let's use the term occupancy map to describe the representation itself, like this volumetric mm. representation uh, that is, you know, that's surrounding the car. So the nerfs, uh, they do this other step. They're doing a nerf that can take the volumetric thing and turn it back into an image. So you could ask the question like, what is that? really useful for? Well, there are a couple of things you can use it for right away that are really interesting. One of them is, say, I want to build a simulation based on my volume. In other words, the car drove, this was something they showed us uh, at the last AI day, I think, you know, car drives through a situation and we had a problem with this situation. We want to turn that into a simulation so that we can vary how fast mm -hmm. the cars are, what the lighting is and all that kind of stuff and understand this problem the neural network is having. So, It'd be really great to have a piece of software that takes the recording that produced the volumetric thing and turn that into something that we can use in a simulator. It's got to turn it back into images and whatnot. So the nerfs are kind of a way to do that. They help do that sort of thing. But another, but I think the you know the ultimate goal with the nerfs, this the uh, the thing that if you could do it would be really really powerful and would really sort of change the the playing field in a significant way. And what I think, the reason I think Ashok is interested in this, the, you know, the, the big payoff is 
if you get the nerfs to regenerate a, a, a cam what the cameras saw uh, from the volumetric thing. Because the thing is now you've done two things. I have the camera coming in and I'm turning it into an understanding of the situation, this this occupancy map. Mm-hmm. Now, if I can have if I can set that that part aside and I can have an independent process that can take the occupancy map and generate the nerfs, well, the nerfs are like the camera views, right? If that whole process is differentiable, you can train it end to end now. And all of a sudden you're in a world where we can just take lots of video and every single frame of video we get. Like, And once you have that, you can start doing experiments where you change these intermediate representations. And this is, this is sort of the progression we've seen in a lot of other areas with neural networks where you, you start out and they're broken into different blocks. But once you get to a point where you can get all the way to the end, and you the, the thing about it di- being differentiable is that once it once the whole process is differentiable from one end to the other, you can run back propagation. That's the learning process that neural networks use to just get better. Once it's differentiable from one end to the other, now you can go hog wild. You can just feed anything into it. You can back prop the whole thing, and and suddenly the level of automation has gone up. So you can in, so now it's just computation, right? And you can do lots of simple, even automated experiments where you can have a piece of software that trains the neural network and then changes something and then trains it again. Is it better or worse? And then you change something else and you train it again, better or worse. So, you know, it sort of sits there inside a computer and just gets better and better. I've been using recently this uh, sort of the evolution of of, uh, like we can do translation from one person's voice in one language to voice in another language. And the way you used to have to do that is you'd start with sound, you'd run it through a spectrogram, you'd break that down into phonemes, then you'd have another module to take the phonemes and try to make sentences out of them. The sentences would have errors, so then you'd have this language model that sat on that and it would fix the missing words and that kind of stuff. Once you had the words, then you had a translation model that would translate it into the other language and then you would do all those steps separately. And in the beginning, some of those steps are uh, software, some of them are neural networks. I mean, in the beginning, none of them were neural networks when speech recognition started out. And these were all sort of built as blocks. Once they started being neural networks, you know, somebody would take one part, make a neural network, another part. At some point, somebody had made neural networks out of all the different pieces. And so you could try to just string all the, because neural networks are differentiable. Once you string all the neural networks together, now you can try to go end to end. And we we do see uh, like Microsoft, this has been a big uh, uh, area of research for them. They can just take lots of language recorded in different models and they have a single thing and they train end to end just from the sound right back to the sound. So there's a thing that happens when you do that. When you started out, you had this concept of phonemes, mm-hmm. right? And the as the when the sound has to be converted into phonemes, that works well if sound can be well represented by phonemes. And it turns out that phonemes, they're an okay representation of sound, but they're not perfect. There's all kinds of stuff that phonemes don't capture. Like we have in, in English, I forget, 40-something that we like to use. And uh, and it turns out that if you try to stick with phonemes, there's all kinds of nuance and stuff that you, that you lose. Once you have the neural networks running end-to-end, instead of... Uh, you know, if the neural networks are inventing their own phonemes on the process of training, you can say, what if there were 100 phonemes? And you don't tell what the phonemes are. You just tell, okay, you can use 100 now. Mm. Figure out what they are. And 
And what you what we find is that by doing those kinds of experiments, what you see is the performance improves. You figure out what the bottlenecks are, like yeah. the, the the iteration on the product. So if Tesla can get to where they can get nerfs out of their volumetric representation and they go from the cameras to the volumetric representation already, there's the potential to close that loop and mm -hmm. rapidly speed up the, the pace of development of this technology. Okay. All right. So this is interesting. So let me see if I'm getting this. So because um, some people ask like, oh, why can't Tesla do end to end right now? It's mm -hmm. like MuZero or like, a, you know, with game mm -hmm. development, et cetera. My thinking is um, in a game, it's a closed loop system. You know, all of the variables. And so like the game, you could just run the game a million times. And, you know, it's like you predict each move results in another, you know, situation that is predictable mm -hmm. within the rules of the game. With driving, there's so many, um, it's, it's, um, there's this unknown part where if you can't perceive the environment um, accurately enough, then it's like your whatever million scenarios you train, you you simulate on that, it's not gonna be that helpful because it's not the real thing. But if your perception, let's say you do the cameras, not just to Alcapista networks, but actually to to nerfs, where you actually are seeing everything in three D accurately, um, it seems like in that type of environment you could go ahead and run a million variations of different things that'll happen and it actually helps because it's an accurate you know representation of the scenario it just seems like that would be this massive massive jump in training and accuracy and possibilities um is that kind of what you're 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 you're, you're you know uh you're inferring here um so you can train driving end-to-end. -end. There are people doing it. <clears throat> the best result that you can get training end-to-end -end is not very good right now. Um, the reason to take a problem and not training end-to-end -to, -end to break it down is because you get a couple of things when you break a problem down into multiple networks where you kind of understand what's passing between them. You get these little diagnostic blocks where you can start asking questions about is, you know, what would be a better rep is a, if you, if you just take a neural network and you slice it at a couple points um, and you look at what's passing from one stage to another and you go a step further and you constrain it to have some kind of interpretable meaning at that point, you now have a way of looking into the system to understand what it's doing as you try different things. And you also have a way of exploring the internal representations because you can vary those things and you can see how they affect the system. Um, if you go end to end, you're basically saying, I'm, you know, I'm gonna make this really big, really complicated black box. And there's a, literally, an all, an, I mean, it's, there's a countable infinity <laughs> of different things you could put inside that black box. Um, Trying to explore the space of all those possibilities just by trying stuff is uh, it's super intense computationally. And I, you know, I think you know most people would say that's an intractable problem. If you don't get lucky, you, you're you're not not going to be able to do that with any reasonable amount of computation. So you so when you're doing end to end, you're forced to uh, lower your her, lower your goals uh, uh, to get something that you can do end to end, and then you try to get better by incrementally raising your goals and, and hopefully get to that point. That's sort of how you need to approach end to end when the stuff in the black box is really complicated. Um, if we look at 
uh, you know, sort of notable uh, advancements in in uh, neural networks in like the last like 10 years or something, they mostly don't get done end to end. Like uh, when DeepMind did AlphaGo, they didn't put a bunch of neurons in a box and go at it. They started with some kind of understanding of what they wanted to do and some intermediate representations. They did eventually get to something which is basically end to end, but they did it by initially breaking it down into blocks, refining the blocks, understanding what was going on, iterating through those things, making the individual blocks better. And, and at some point at those interfaces where you have the human understandable thing, if the piece in front is working pretty well and the piece in back is working pretty well, you can start saying, okay, I'm going to just let the neural network, instead of constraining it to what I think should pass between block A and block B, I'm going to let the neural network pick it. And if you've got a, a, a an input block and an output block that are both basically doing okay, there's a decent chance you can iterate. You can let the neural network take over that task. You can let the, the search algorithm that's basically trying to understand that, figure that out, and converge on a different thing that's not human understandable, but that works better as that intermediate thing. Um, and then, you know, our experience is that when you let them do that, everything gets a lot better. So... Uh, the argument for doing end-to-end -end is like don't even try to have any human understandable stuff in the middle because we know that in the long run, trying to make human understandable stuff in the middle it degrades the performance of the system. Like when you can get rid of it, it always gets better. That's the argument for end-to-end. -end. <clears throat> the downside to end-to-end -end is if we don't put some human in or if we can't break it up into modules, if we can't break the problem down into <clears throat> pieces, it's much harder to... Uh, it, it's much harder to make progress, right? Because you're having to treat the whole thing as a, as a single unit where there's all different kinds of complicated interactions between the parts when you make something. If I can break it down into a simpler subset of a problem and work on that, then, you know, a, what we see is that is that sizable problems that get broken down that way in the real world, we make progress on them faster. And, you know, I mean, almost without exception, all of the really notable advances in neural networks that we've seen in the last 10 years have taken that. The first group to get really outstanding performance was taking that approach. And we see very few examples of entities that started out end to end mm -hmm. and just were ma managed to be the first to produce a good solution using end to end. Mm -hmm. End to end is great. Um, for problems, I mean, there's a space of problems where you can just go out of end to end and, and good results get get. Uh, get produced. The more complicated a problem is, the more difficult it is to just start out end to end and get there in a reasonable amount of time. Sure. All right. So <clears throat> I want to go back to this, um, the bot um, and this idea of the software versus the hardware. So um, someone uh, tweeted or replied to one of my tweets was, and was saying something like, oh, I can't wait until the robot becomes like a a ball machine for playing tennis. Oh, right? yeah. So that optimist could like, you know, basically shoot the balls and someone yeah. can play tennis. And I was thinking about that. I'm like, well, the next step is actually really playing tennis, you know, against mm -hmm. the human. Mm -hmm. It reminds me a bit of the whole uh, RoboCup uh, ch uh, challenge where mm -hmm. the dream is all these colleges compete against each other, you know, with soccer team, robot soccer teams. Mm -hmm. And the the vision is one day, um, an intelligent robot soccer team will beat a professional soccer mm -hmm. team, right? It's just yeah. a matter of time. Yes. Um, that's the, the the idea. So I was thinking about this tennis robot and I was like, you know, like before Tesla got into AI and robots, 
it's the idea of a professional soccer team getting beat by robots seems like mm -hmm. at least a couple of decades away, right? Mm -hmm. You know, um, but when I look at what Tesla is doing, especially bringing that body, you know, with custom design actuators and the developments they're doing with the brain, I'm my question is how fast do you think will the hardware be ready to, for example, play tennis against somebody? Um, enough where it's mechanically possible to actually play. Mm -hmm. And then the second question is, when will their brains get good enough where it actually be, will be able to control that body enough where it actually could beat, let's say, a very good tennis player? So, I mean, there are two different ideas, is when the brain will be ready, but when, the, when will the hardware be ready? So I guess the first question is like, when do you think this, the hardware, do you think what they showed version two can actually play tennis when it gets Better or probably you, not the way a human plays tennis. Okay, do you think it'll take a you know a few or several more years before the the hardware itself can actually play tennis adequately? Humans, uh, man, this is that's a really interesting question. Well, okay, first, like you know, as I keep coming back to this, the big limiter is software. If you had you know really really good software, mm -hmm. um, yeah, Optimus could probably play tennis in the body he's got right now. Could he build beat a pro? I don't know. The he's got few enough degree like he's enough constrained in the degrees of freedom he has in the range of motion and probably I mean we don't know what the you know power speed of the actuators is right now or how efficient the body is. It might, it might if, if Optimus is trying to play tennis like human beings, he might be thermally limited, <laughs> you know? That is, I mean, the current design, it might yeah. not be able to operate at mm -hmm. high output for long enough without overheating for it to be a problem. So you might have to have radiators or other designs and that kind of stuff if you wanted to do that. Depends on how efficient the electronics are, how efficient the actuators are. Um, it's probably got enough degrees of freedom. I, so this is one of the things that, that I mentioned before. Like if I think about the hand holding a tennis racket, it can probably pick up a tennis racket, right? Is it going to have the kind of flexible de dexterous grip and the kind of wrist motion to be good at returning ball? I mean, if it has plenty of time to set up for a ball coming, you know, it's, mm -hmm. that is the restrictions on its motion are going to cause it to have to do extra movement because it doesn't have as many degrees of freedom as a human does. To, in order to like, re, you know, return a, a, a serve that a human wouldn't have to do, how much does that impact it? Could it do it at all? Yeah. You know, if you're not playing very fast, you know, I would guess it probably has enough degrees of freedom to do that and the existing body more would be better. I don't know if what the power capability of the current actuators is. Um, and I would say like one of the biggest weaknesses is, you know, the hand has a pretty constrained grip, but pretty, I mean, when a human holds a tennis racket, every single one of your fingers is doing, you know, it's not like your fingers just close like a clamp on it. To what extent does that hurt you? Some, I don't know how much. It'd yeah. take a simulation to to sort of figure it out. Yeah. But uh, I think uh, Tesla is likely to get to a body that can play tennis before they get to software that can play tennis at, the current, yeah. at the current pace of development. Yeah. So I think I mentioned before that you know, we do get these discontinuous advancements where you, where some subset of things we want to do with neural networks suddenly kind of leaps forward because somebody just figures out the right approach. Uh, and it's entirely possible that some of the components of what Optimus would need to do to play tennis will undergo some of those transformations 
you know, in the next few years. And that will rapidly accelerate yeah. my expectation for, for what that. So barring that, you know, I, you know, we sort of imagine if all the techniques we know work today continue to incrementally improve just by scaling and whatnot. And in that, if that latter case is it, I would expect the body to be ready to play a good game of tennis before the software is ready to play a good game of tennis. But I would love to be wrong about that. Yeah. There, um, there have been some, uh, so reinforcement learning has been used to train robots in simulation. Mm -hmm. uh, the, uh, and the grace and efficiency and capability of robots, you know, imaginary robots that we can train in simulation. It's there some really impressive things have been done. I mean, you know, robots that move in simulation, they're indistinguishable from the level of grace and capability of a human being. And that's really impressive. So like we have existence proofs that neural networks can get us there. Now the robots in simulation, they're much simpler in many respects than robots in the real world. Um, you, you know, it's, it, it's expensive and risky to have your robot doing backflips <laughs> in real life, you know, cause you go through a lot of robots that way yeah. before you get the backflip to work in simulation, you can just do that. Yeah. So that's part of the reason why the simulation is ahead. And well, part of it is just that robots in the real world are also more complicated. They have more things that they have to deal with. Yeah. Um, so the software will get there. Yeah. I'm really confident of that. Yeah. So it's interesting cause I think this tennis example, it triggers some people because they're like, oh my gosh, that's like never gonna happen in my lifetime. Like, you know, robot mm -hmm. actually beating someone at tennis or something. Um, but I was like, um, a few months ago, I was looking into ping pong robots mm -hmm. because I was thinking of getting a table tennis thing for mm -hmm. my kids. And they actually have like these ping pong robots, ping -pong robots yeah. with cameras that basically can beat almost anybody. Yeah. Cause you know, and- They so, don't play, play like a human does. Yeah, yeah, course. they don't. Yeah. But the idea is um, that's not, the difficult, like, yeah. if you have a robot, just if they're standing still at a tennis court, they could probably, you know, I'm sure Tesla can make something pretty quickly. I don't say quickly, but I mean, it, the hardware could probably get there, you know, within a year or two to yeah. maybe to swing the racket, you know, back and forth. And they've got the, the brain to be able to do that. Yeah. Um, a bigger question, I think, is probably the, like how fast it can move side to side and forward and actually accurately. Um, Have you seen, uh, there was a lab, this is several years ago. They, uh, they got, um, they built a robot arm that would just catch things you would throw at it. Right. So it was just like bolted to a table yeah. and you could like, you could, you could pick up a rock and toss, or you could pick up a bottle and wow. flip it end over end. You could pick up a tennis racket and flip it end over end, you know, and you know, it used a camera, it yeah. pre predicted the trajectory and it had a fast moving robot arm wow. that just snap out there. And it was it, like, it was pretty shocking. Like, the random stuff that he could just pick up and throw across the room or whatnot, and then just grab it out of the air, right? So it, it, it's a cool. it, yeah. What if you constrain the problem a little bit? Yeah. Like robots, robots can do a lot yeah. of. Yeah, have you seen the videos where they take a robot at, on these NBA halftime games and they'll do it from half court, and the robot will just like sink these yeah. three point yeah. <laughs> shots over and over and over? It should be ten pointers, right? Yeah, <laughs> half court, yeah. but. You think about it like you're like, oh man, robots will never beat an NBA team, right? <laughs> but yeah. like the... if they don't play like a human, like, you know, yeah. if you you know, if you want to build a, a tennis robot to build yeah. to beat a, a human being, you know, one approach is 
let it make it do a 400 mile an hour serve. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> so there's just no way a human can return it, right? Exactly. And then it just has to be able to to volley well enough to like eventually get the serve, right? And then yeah. it wins every game. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. That's the thing. I think our human, like when we compare ourselves to robots, we, we're not expecting a robot to do like a full court, you know, shot or something yeah. like crazy. But yeah. they're not limited in the same way that I think humans uh, yeah. will be. And so it's just, yeah, it's, it's fascinating um, to think about this stuff. And that, that's an interesting sort of just that framework of thinking about robots mm -hmm. and people's yeah. expectation of robots is that, you know, we tend to think of things the way, uh, you know, in term, in, in the, the first, when you ask somebody how hard something is, you know, the first thing they do is, well, how hard is it for me to do it, right? Yeah. And they don't, they don't, they don't go to, you know, well, what if, you know, what if I could, you know, lift a car? What if I could move my arm at the speed of sound? You know, what if, you know, there's, cause there's all these other possibilities that you just disregard, right? Yeah. You use your intuition and you, and you imagine how hard something is that way. In the, in the driving thing, you know, we, uh, people often uh, will make a, you know, there are certain things that are really tough for a human being, like for a human being to drive a car in a complicated situation with a lot, like lots of pedestrians close to the car and cars in front of you and back of you sort of like, you're moving like through a parking lot, you know, and there's lots of pedestrians and cars maneuvering around and stuff. And that from an information standpoint, that's kind of overwhelming to a human being because you got to keep track of stuff in front of you and behind you at the same time, which mm -hmm. is like that just intuitively, it seems like super, it, when there's short reaction time stuff yeah. and you've got to be looking forward, backward, forward, backward. To a machine, that's super trivial because it's looking yeah. at all those things at the same time. Like if you've got eight eyes and yeah. you can see in the back of your head, that's just trivial, right? Yeah. It's a really easy problem to solve. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting because like I, I think of Steph Curry who does, you know, these alley shots before mm -hmm. pregame where he'll go not just off court, but like in the alley and he'll try to make a three-point shot and mm -hmm. he'll get it often and people are just amazed at his ability. Mm -hmm. But if you compare that to a robot, mm -hmm. it's like the difference is if you have a robot that has multiple cameras, they will know the exact position they are on the court, the exact distance, you know, from the backboard, elevation, you know, conditions, and they'll be able to sync that shot far more accurately yeah. than Steph They've Curry. got mechanical advantage. Yeah, it'll be like no no comparison in a, in a sense eventually. And um, you think that robots can never, five robots can never beat an NBA team, but... This might happen sooner than you know. If it's open, expect. if if we don't expect them or require them to play the same way humans do, like yeah. that might not be that long. I I mean, I'm much more uh, enthusiastic about the time when a set of robots can beat an NBA team playing the way humans do, playing just the same way. You give them essentially the same physical constraints, essentially mm -hmm. the same de degree of freedom. Because I think, you know, watching humans play basketball is beautiful, right? And watching machine gun just like, yeah. you know, lob, you know, sink from all the way across the court. That's like, that's not so, that's like watching a backo dig a ditch or something like yeah. that. It's super, you know, they make these... Uh, I guess they make these sniper rifles now. So it's a the where you put a camera on a scope or something like that and you you pick a target that you that you want to hit. And then, you know, the uh the whoever's firing the weapon, they pull the trigger and you know, you it's really hard to shoot at something far away and hold the weapon really still, right? You know, it 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 kind of moves around. Well, what this thing does is it just has a camera in there and it waits for the crosshair to coincidentally cross the exact point and then it <laughs> pulls the trigger for you, right? And it's a super simple mechanism, right? Yeah. All it's doing is timing the trigger pull at the exact instant that the scope that the you happen to be pointing in the right direction. And 
you know, it's taking advantage of a couple of things that machines have really well. Like, and they, you know, they have really quick reflexes and they have a really fast ability to respond, which humans don't have. And that that's very simple compared to all of the resources a human. It's kind of a cheat, right? Mm-hmm. And yet, you know, you know, snipers are so much better once they have that tool. Yeah. So, but it's boring, you know, it's not interesting. Yeah. It's much more impressive yeah. to see a human being overcome all the limits of the human body and the human reflexes and stuff and be able to do that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, uh, thinking back on like when AI beat, um, chess and go and all this stuff, it's like that, that kind of initial shock slash disappointment or humbling of the, of the, of the human race almost, you know, like, mm-hmm. like where it's like unimaginable that, you know, this computer has beaten them on this like epic game. Right. Yeah. Um, it just seems like it's inevitable. This happens across many, many yeah, fields. Everything. Yeah, yeah, basically everything, right? And um, yeah, with sports and whatever, men- whether it's a mental type of challenge or a physical challenge, yeah. it's just one by one, you know, um, it's going to be taken out and you're going to have more and more of these moments of just humbling of the human race in a sense, you know. Yeah. Um, Robot ballet dancers, yeah. right? Yeah. It- you know, that's an interesting thing to think about. We think about how, you know, the grace and expressiveness of the human form and art and the idea that a machine could do. I mean, they will, you yeah. know, in time yeah. be able to do that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, so um, some questions from uh, Twitter followers um, here. Rizzle says they showed a few quick clips of what the bot sees, but we didn't get too much on the brain part of Tesla bot. It was mostly hardware stuff. Was James satisfied or intrigued by anything software vision neural net related on the bot or was there just not too much to show yet? Uh, yeah, my impression is they've done kind of, a. uh, essentially that they they're they're two things going on they're using pretty classic motion control for controlling the body mm-hmm. and for perception they're taking what they have working in the cars for understanding the environment and the you know the occupancy maps uh and they've they've tweaked that the the robot needs you know smaller voxels and it needs you know more height and more width relative to the car and it, actually if you look at the animations you can see that that the you know the they've they've done exactly the changes that you think, but that that in a sense you that those are like parameter changes that you can make to the occupancy, and this is in service. I mean, they've barely got this robot. You know, I mean the the second generation one they didn't really have it working yet. They showed us what they had in mechanics, and that was great. So they're clearly um, you know going as fast as they can to get something useful, and they're starting with what they have at hand. And I think that's what we see that. I'm super excited for when they move beyond classical model predictive coding for uh, for how they control the body because I think there's tremendous potential there. And uh, but I see no sign that they're doing that right now. What, what would that look like? Would it be more like neural nets involved yeah. in control? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can. There. In software and in, simu- in simulation, uh, people have done end-to-end neural network systems for controlling robot bodies, and they work great. You can make right. their, of course, these are little demo type things, mm-hmm. um, but uh, you know, there's plenty of of evidence that that they're going to be brilliant when we get them working and in real robot bodies. They're yeah. already brilliant in simulated yeah. robot bodies. Yeah, yeah. One of the things is um, is what I got from Tesla AI Day again was kind of this 
re a confirmation of how complex um, building AI at scale is. Like how much support and team, the infrastructure, the tooling, QA, all mm -hmm. this stuff that you need to data quality um, yeah. compute. There's so much involved yeah. that it's not like a small outfit can compete with you know these big tech companies on these these super ambitious you know AI projects, and um, it seems like Tesla isn't has been fortunate enough to to build what they've built in a way where it's actually a useful, it's use, producing something useful as actually mm -hmm. a driving aid mm -hmm. right now. And it's actually able to help their, their, their business model. And they're being able to build this kind of, you know, massive team. But it makes, um, it makes me think that it's, there aren't that many companies at, who have that level of AI expertise that can build the brain of a robot at, to compete with Tesla. I mean, there are some right now, I think that, you know, you take the Googles or the Facebooks or some others who have large AI compute teams, et cetera. But the question is, do they have the ambition and the will and the drive to really focus on, you know, a bot, a robot or not? Um, and what's your kind of, um, yeah, impression on kind of the competitive landscape in terms of not just the hardware, but the software side of the robot? Like, are there gonna be, you think, like more and more. It would be great if there were. That's yeah. my first impression. That I know that people really love the horse race sort of aspect of whatever's going mm -hmm. on. Um, but like with, you know, the robotaxi thing, as I've said a few times, like the TAM for that market is so much bigger than any organization's reasonable ability to fill it in the near term that, uh, you know, there's a lot of potential for lots of different people to succeed. Even... After first mover advantage, you know, it only gets you so far if you're production limited. Like, you know, Tesla's got first mover advantage in electric cars, but how long is it going to take them to scale to building all that? Does, to what extent is te does Tesla's success forestall another auto OEM's ability to even build electric cars? And the answer is like not, not actually all that much, right? Because there are plenty of, you know, opportunities for for other things in the space. And I think the robotics is gonna be the same way. It, uh, Although I do think they're gonna be able to scale robot production a lot faster than they scaled uh, car production, especially if they have robots helping. <laughs> I mean, with robots, I mean, it seems like cars, you're, you're depending on depending on so many suppliers also. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you have hundreds of parts, it's a complex mm -hmm. process, you have batteries, all this stuff. With the robot, it just seems fundamentally so much simpler. Mm -hmm. um, you're not relying on as many suppliers. You're building probably the actuators yourself. You have the computer. I mean, yeah, it just seems like it could scale a lot faster in some ways. Yeah, it. Uh, I think it's likely to scale much faster than. I mean, simpler. Simpler though. It's interesting because uh, it's like the pieces are easier to make and can be made in parallel. And you also have fewer pieces. That's kind of all dialed in. In a robot, you might have a lot of really small pieces involved, especially, mm -hmm. you know, when we get down the road to get more sophisticated robots than are being anticipated right now. The part count could get pretty high. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, you might be, I mean, lithography is a process that makes 
uh, integrated circuits and it can put 50 billion transistors on an integrated circuit in a small period of time because you do them all together. So processes that run in parallel like that mm. um, for small devices are a lot more practical than for big devices. And I think there'll be more of those processes that are relevant to making robots than to making cars. Mm -hmm. um, G. Sidhu <clears throat> says, is James uh, Dama more confident about TeslaBot after watching AI Day? Also, does he believe that TeslaBot will be available to purchase in five years time, according to Elon? I was pretty confident about it. I don't know yeah. if I can get more confident. <laughs> so like, yeah, probably. I mean, it's, mm -hmm. I was surprised at how much progress they made. I mean, in the mechanics of, of getting something out the door. This is, uh, I had a, sort of anticipated them taking a slightly different approach, which is probably my mistake, uh, like not thinking carefully enough. Because I think the, what they're doing is a good way to do it. Like it's in, Given the choice between that and what I was expecting them to do, I have to admit that what they're doing is a better idea than what I was thinking about. Um, five years, sure. Uh, if I, I think Tesla certainly could make a robot in five years. Whether they will will probably kind of develop depend on like what opportunities they have uh, and what they see as the risks and benefits of 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 trying to do that. For instance, you know, how many factories in the world um, might want robots and how soon can you satisfy that demand? Like what are the things that you could learn by giving them to private individuals or small businesses that you wouldn't be able to learn if you didn't do that? Um, that would be, that's part of the, the upside. I, I would not think that five years from now, like you would have so saturated the non- retail market and be forced to go to retail to keep selling it like that. There's no chance that that's going to happen. On the other hand, it might well be the case that there's data collection merit or testing merit or mm -hmm. just, you know, people come up with interesting use cases for stuff when technology, when you put it in, in people's hands and, um, you know, a hundred factories might come up with a thousand interesting ways mm -hmm. to use a robots, but, and, and they might need a hundred thousand robots to do that. But you, you know, you give 10,000 robots to, uh, to uh, people in the real world and they come up with 9,000 interesting yeah. ideas for how to use them. That, that can all be useful too. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy when you think about the use cases. Like, I think, um, yeah, I was just thinking it's not just a robot can possibly play tennis with me in the morning, but also before I wake up, like take my dog out for a walk, <laughs> my dogs all exercise, and, you know, <laughs> play tennis, and like make breakfast. I don't know. There's a lot of stuff. It'll but, be the robot's dog. Yeah, you know? yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The dog will follow around the robot all day. <laughs> Funny treats. Well, the robot gives it the food, right? Yeah, and exactly. gives it the treats. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. What about a, a dog training? It's you know, it's hard to train a dog. It's. I mean, I hear that training dogs is yeah, hard. I've never tried yeah, to do it. Yeah. But I've I've heard from people who try to train dogs that you know it takes a lot of discipline. And you know what robots have? Discipline <laughs> and time, yeah. <laughs> and patience. Yeah. Um, here, Paul um, Moraski says, without hundreds of thousands of units collecting data as with FSD, how does Tesla train the neural nets for the Tesla bot to get data the data flywheel it needs for rapid improvement simulations? Question mark. Um. So there's different ways to approach doing the neural network development. And we can see different companies or approach it different ways, depending on whether they have a lot of data or not, whether simulation can address their needs or not. 
um, you know, what their use case is going to be. Uh, the robot use case is going to be different in some interesting ways. Um, like, I actually feel in certain respects, they don't need as much data. In some respects, they need more. Um, the, the range of variety in interior environments that a robot will have to inhabit is certainly much larger than it is for cars. The, the range of important variables that you have to that you have to deal with. And then there's a whole extra dimension. I mean, robots really do inhabit a three-dimensional space. And cars, they kind of inhabit a 2.5-dimensional space. They really only move in two dimensions. And uh, and height matters, but it's less important than than the other dimensions. And that, that is definitely not going to be true for robots. So the fact that you've got the extra dimensionality, uh, the fact that robots are going to, they have many more degrees of freedom in how they can move through their environment. That also means you need to collect data, you know, that's relevant to all those modalities too. Uh, so in certain respects, you need more data. My guess is in from a practical standpoint, they're going to end up needing less. Um, and a lot of that comes down to the risk of using robots in an environment that there's there's a certain degree of refinement that you have to get to for uh, for a, a system that drives a car on public roads before you can turn it loose. And this can become a big constraint on your ability to gather data. With a robot, to a first approximation, for non-dynamic movements, which like almost all movements that humans do could be can be reduced to non-dynamic elements, a robot can move arbitrarily slow. Um, you know, it's okay for a robot to stop at any point in most tasks. Like if you're if you're feeding a machine that has a certain cycle time, well, the robot's got to move as fast as the machine does. But for a lot of tasks, the robot can just slow down, right? So you can get safety or confidence by letting the robot move more slowly. And what that's going to do is allow you to more thoroughly explore the, the envelope of things with a lower level of maturity in the software that you're that you're using. And I think, so as all of these techniques improve, they become more sample efficient, which means you need less data to get the same results. So uh, with, with robots, I think there's a decent chance it's a sample efficiency improve. And we all, the robot already benefits from sample efficiency improvements that we didn't have when FSD started. Like a lot of techniques that get used require a lot less data today than they did at the time. And, uh, you know, I don't know, it's going to be really interesting to see to what extent. I, my intuition is that with robots, uh, having the robot model its environment is going to be a more, a bigger component of success uh, and less, have I seen every possible variation of this weird condition? Got it. Um, here, Arg uh, Angus Yip says, Optimus use cases by stages and timeline. And then we've got a few other people there saying, what would be your kind of expectations or guess of what Tesla would show at AI Day 2023 for the Optimus bot? Like what oh, are some capabilities in 2023, maybe 2024? So let's say the next couple of years, are there any kind of stages that you would expect, you know, Tesla to reach as milestones, you know, for the Optimus bot? Wow, that's... Uh... Well, just kicking some ideas around. Yeah. So at what point is Optimus doing something useful in a Tesla factory? So that's an interesting mm -hmm. 
Like I would imagine they could do that this year. If we're talking about like loading, doing a repetitive motion, like loading part, like the one they demonstrated, you know, loading some oddly shaped part into a machine or into a bin or transporting boxes around, like I wouldn't be surprised if they're doing that and they're able to make use of their own. Not not necessarily the case that it's the best, that it's the most economical way to achieve the task, mm -hmm. but rather they're able to make use of the robot. Like I would not be surprised to see that in 2023. And if they were doing that uh, next year, then you'd sort of expect them to show this, that to us at AI Day 2023. Mm -hmm. um, I would definitely expect to see significantly uh, more graceful movement and a bigger, because they've had very little time to work on local, I mean, if, if you think about when they started and how long it took them, how long it would take just to get a robot built that you could start doing software on. And then you've got to do all this foundational work on the robot before you can even start working on stuff. It's kind of amazing that they've got it moving at all. Um, you know, in, uh, so I would expect a lot more progress on that front before we see AI day 2023. Um, What? Maybe some hand dexterity. It. I would like to see them make the hand better. That said, uh, there's a lot of stuff they can do with the hand and they might decide that uh, there are other things that are more important to work on. So I would give that maybe a 50-50 chance that we would see significant changes mm -hmm. in the way the hand works. I, I feel like, you know, understanding the environment so that you can move through it, mm -hmm. um, and then getting sort of locomotion, weight distribution, your ability to move around. You know, factories have a lot of confined spaces that human beings work inside. So you need to be able to get a good understanding of your environment at a fine uh, level of detail. So motion planning for a robot is pretty complicated. You got 28 degrees of freedom. A car's got like two, <laughs> right? <laughs> so, so motion planning is significantly more complicated. Uh, and I imagine that like getting those things nailed down so that the robot can just be in an environment, move around in an environment, those are probably going to be higher priorities than, than like trying to move on to things that require yeah. dexterity. Yeah. Um, George says on Twitter, how does James rate the difficulty of advancing hand dexterity versus advancing bipedal motion on imperfect surfaces with load? Uh, the I think the hand's harder for... If we're talking about, you know... How hard is it to do either of these two to a degree that uh, like is useful in the real world? I mean, hand dexterity, like, you know, if you're picking up a bottle of water, you're picking up a pitcher, you're picking up things where, you know, they have a handle on them and you, all you have to do is close your grip on it. Uh, all of that. I mean, that's that's super straightforward. If we're talking about hand dexterity where like I want to write my name with a pencil, right? I don't think we're going to see that by 2023. That takes a lot of hand deck. Well, <laughs> I guess the robot can hold the pencil yeah, this yeah, way exactly. and do it with its <laughs> yeah. arm. Like humans, yeah. like trying to write your name using your arm is hard. The robot, yeah. you know, that's another example of robots can do it a different way. So maybe you could, but the kind of hand dexterity to like write your name using your wrist and your finger muscles and that kind of stuff, that's pretty hard to do. Mm -hmm. the, the other thing that affects this is that um, there's been a lot of work on the bipedal motion over arbitrarily complicated surfaces and quadrupeds and arbitrary surfaces that they can that they can adopt and build on. And so adopting those things, building on them and iterating, I would expect them to get that maybe not fast, but faster than they would get 
you know, hand dexterity. I, I'm unaware of anybody who has like made significant progress on uh, a fully dexterous human hand that could use a pencil and draw a picture. Mm. So. Yeah, got it. Um, Eric Brown says, I was thinking about the reactions humans have when they're holding something and it slips from their grasp mm -hmm. and they reflexively attempt to catch it, often succeeding. Mm -hmm. Does James believe that AI optimists can someday be that good? Ooh, this is another one where the human, the robot solves the problem a different way. Mm. Um, having something to a robot, having something slip out of its hand and fall to the floor for the processes in the robot that need to anticipate that stuff, the robot's got like a week to think about it, slowly watch the thing fall, carefully think about the set mm -hmm. of motions. So humans do things, to a human, those kinds of motions seem really fast because our sort of our clock rate is pretty slow and we do very complicated mm -hmm. very sophisticated modeling so you when you when you're holding something and you uh and you you know you uh you drop it or it bounces off a table and you have to reflexively like turn and grab the thing in midair catch it as it's falling and whatnot yeah. Your brain is processing that in like one go. It's like one neuron. So, you mm -hmm. know, your your sensors propagate into your head. Your head has, it's already has this model of the environment that's very sophisticated and includes many possible futures that it's considered. So now you've got this surprising future mm -hmm. and your brain basically flips one state thing, does one pass through a stack of neurons and you and you know how to move your body. Like mm. your body has already sort of pre-planned and stored away all of these things that it can do so that it can quickly just select one off the list mm. and respond to it. Robots, because they run at a higher clock rate, what they're going to do is consider those situ... Well, not if they're neural networks, but planning for robots, because we're talking about planning. Uh, they have a lot of time to do this kind of stuff. So they're going to solve it a different way. That said, I think the reef, you know, it's a... Thinking about reflexes in robots versus reflexes in humans is kind of an interesting, because that is such an amazingly sophisticated and capable yeah. system in human beings. Yeah. But the like the stumble re the classic reflex, of course, is a stumble reaction where you're walking along and your uh, human stumble reaction is so fast your brain actually isn't involved. Right? Mm -hmm. If you're walking and the front of your and and your uh, your, that your foot moving forward is impeded, right? What that does is it fires this proprioceptive sensor in your tendon. That's the one that doctors whack on to tech your, mm. test your reflex. And that actually sends a signal to, a, to a, a nerve cluster at the base of your spine that lifts your knee up and extends your knee. It lifts your hip and extends your knee. And what that does is it plants a foot in front of you so that if you're falling, the foot is in the right position to do that. And that's actually faster than then a human can respond and robots will never need that because they're just a lot faster. Yeah, interesting. Um, all right, so here's Bad French, Frenchy says, what are your best guesses on how Tesla gets a good language interface for Optimus um, and the cars? Partner with one of the usual suspects or roll their own? Uh, uh, so language models, in a sense, are getting easy because there's a lot of open source ones that you can get and there's a lot of formulas for rolling your own or adopting something. In fact, language models, um, uh, you know, the the dominant model of doing language models these days is to pick a foundation model and fine tune it for your own needs. Uh, and it, it seems super likely that, that Tesla would grab one of those models and then fine tune it for their needs as a first cut. Mm -hmm. um, 
Also, there are so many other entities that are doing a great job and that are putting the tech out there for doing language models that I sort of suspect that uh, that Tesla wouldn't do any sort of fundamental work in that space at all because I, I don't see their language needs sort of deviating far enough from what is available that they would need to roll their own. Mm-hmm. Got it. Um, here, thanks for all the fish says. I'm curious what James Damoth's thoughts are regarding the big picture economy, society, world stuff that Elon is working toward. If all the pieces of the puzzle come together on a technological level, what are some of the societal implications he sees or hopes for? I guess the question is more like uh, Elon saying, you know, there's no limit to economy, mm-hmm. a future of abundance. Like, um, you know, what are your thoughts kind of on that angle that Elon has? It's a, it's a, it is a big step towards material abundance, right? There are, man, there are so many things that get less expensive and easier to produce in volume. Uh, yeah, like the, the simple material abundance, you know, having enough food, having enough cars, having enough clothes, TVs, you know, all the sort of material things that people want. It, it does feel like it's a really big step in that direction, essentially uh, substantially alleviating the requirement for for human labor to participate in the production of these things. It, yeah. <laughs> the thing is, the yeah. scale, the time frame that we're talking about robotics happening on is also the same. At, you know, robots aren't the only thing that's going to happen in the next five, in the next 10 years. There's all this other stuff that's going to happen. And a lot of it is super important also. And it's super important in the sense that it's going to substantially contribute to the, to this vision of mm-hmm. um, freeing the world from material want. It's like no matter how many robots you have, like you don't get a cure for cancer just from the fact that you have robots, right? I mean, having robot lab assistants to help you mix chemicals and that kind of stuff, that that's already useful. But specialized robots are better at that and, and they already do it. But, you know, AlphaFold, like that's going to move the dial mm-hmm. on cancer research. Uh, and it won't be the only scientifically relevant new uh you know, neural network, AI, whatever development that happens in this time frame, I think many of those are going to have uh, parallel implications for the human condition that are as big as as robot. The robot one is a big one. Yeah. Um, but because we're looking at this unfolding over five or 10 years, well, the next five or 10 years are going to be pretty amazing in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I can imagine a s- situation where you have optimists. I don't know what year this would be, but if it's in your home, you have them do some backyard farming for you, you know, to grow some food, but they've got time on their hands, you know, so they could do an amazing job with farming, like, you know, multi, multi, there's like some people who do backyard farming, who produce a ton of food actually, Mm -hmm. you know, and a robot, they have all the time they could, you know, farm, pick all the weeds, like make multi-levels, like they could produce a ton of food in a relatively yeah, small it's interesting backyard. interesting to think about that. I mean, yeah. we're already seeing a, a lot of really interesting uh, machinery that is uh, removing the need for human manual labor in farms or it's like, you know, mm. picking strawberries. Well, I guess strawberries isn't a good example because there's been strawberry picking machines that are specialized, but there's all of these, uh, you know, thing uh, tasks in uh, in agriculture that there just there hasn't been a good substitute for having a human being do it and uh, 
recently we're seeing lots of specialized robots start doing those jobs. Mm -hmm. And they may be largely automated by the time Optimus is on the scene and able to do that kind of stuff, mm -hmm. just because there's so much economic incentive for doing that. And there are a lot of benefits to having a specialized machinery for some of those. But yeah, you know, if you got a garden in your backyard and you want to grow 20 different kinds of things, well, having one robot that does it all, I mean, that's yeah. the point of a humanoid robot, right? Yeah. Is it, it's, on the one hand, the fact that it's not specialized is both its strength and its weakness, right? Mm -hmm. The fact that it's not specialized means you can use it for lots of things. Because specialty is a two-edged two sword, yeah. right? I like you're really good at thing you're specialized for, and you're really terrible at everything else, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I kind of think my mind goes to, like, what would humans do to be productive and useful around the house if they had, like, 100 hours a day, mm -hmm. like, just free time to do whatever. Thousand, yeah. yeah, yeah, like, you know, um, mm -hmm. that's probably what, you know, the robot might be doing in some ways. Because, um, like, just cleaning the house, it's not going to take that long, you know. To... Depends on how clean you like your house, I guess. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, there's some Did people. You ever, who... uh, Isaac Asimov, uh, he wrote these, uh, these novels, um, like, back in the 60s, where he imagined a world of, uh, you know, uh, a world, a world, you know, this, he had space travel and stuff. So he imagined many worlds where there were lots of, uh, the, lots and lots of robots. And he imagined these uh, societies where there were so many robots or so many more robots than, pe than people mm. that like people didn't interact with each other anymore. And it was rare for them to do that kind of stuff. And, mm. you know, individual humans would have these vast, vast sprawling estates, you know, with all of this kind of ridiculous overhead that was associated with just like maintaining a single human because all of their quirky little wants and mm. needs were suddenly able to be satisfied because, yeah. you know, little, like unlimited material wealth. That's true. It's uh, there, I think even now thinking back about those stories that he, he explores a lot of interesting ideas uh, and maybe I should go back and read those and think about that stuff again. Yeah, yeah, that's fascinating. Um, all right, so Dojo, um, from what Tesla showed at AI Day, like how far are they from Dojo contributing meaningfully to their training effort, at least, let's say, 10% of the compute for what they're doing? That's funny. I, uh, I think, yeah. So they've they've already demonstrated uh, a couple of interesting capabilities, like at the tile level. Um, we we don't know. I mean, they say they're they're they've got a rack coming up, and that they're going to have a whole dojo in Q one, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I would expect that they can get useful work out of it next year. Hmm. Uh, so this is, this is kind of a interesting, uh, moving target thing too. Uh, it's, it's, there's a lot of difference between having all the infrastructure to be able to run heterogeneous jobs and keep the machine busy all the time and, uh, easily adapt new jobs or easily adapt the jobs that you have running on it to be able to drop code on. They're clearly working on the software infrastructure that they need to be able to, I mean, you know, they, they demonstrated stable diffusion uh, running, which stable diffusion running on it was just as a slight digression is, a, is an interesting example. One of the reasons to pick stable diffusion and run it on is not just because you get some, you know, meme worthy pictures coming out of it, but also because stable diffusion has only been out for a few weeks at the point that they do this. So 
it wouldn't have been possible to do that demo if they couldn't quickly adapt a generic PyTorch model to. And I think that's one of the reasons they picked it is because, you know, people who are paying attention are like, yeah, you know, you didn't have a guy go in the back room and work on that for two months mm -hmm. and then lie about being able to adapt it. You really had to be able to do it in a couple of weeks. Um, so they're working on that. It, you know, it looks like they're, to me, like they're making progress. I mean, the compiler stuff that they're talking about seems like exactly the technology that they need to be able to make good use of it yeah. uh, at scale. Um, they clearly have enough primitives working that they can run, you know, some amount of the, of the workloads that they have right now. I would think the interesting test would be like, at what point can they run auto labeler on it? And uh, like, I don't, like off the top of my head, I can't think of a good reason why they wouldn't be able to do it next year unless they're running into a lot of problems on the hardware platform. But mm -hmm. there is another thing because they're building this thing themselves. Uh, a lot of the, a lot of issues are sort of, you know, for lack of a better term, they're clock frequency specific, mm -hmm. right? So, uh, you know, because they're building Dojo from scratch, they can just turn the clock speed down a little and get it working. And mm -hmm. then gradually as they refine it, turn up, as they sort out the yeah. interconnect problems, they, it, it, we see that they've got the die, the D1 die working, right? Well enough to, to run stuff. And they've got tiles working well enough to solve problems at the tile level. We don't know about the tile, the tile interconnect. Like we haven't seen them basically demonstrate to us stuff that takes multiple tiles. So, and that, I think that tile to tile interface like that, that's going to be challenging. And then extending the tile to tile interface across cabinets, that's also yeah. going to be challenging. At what point will they solve that? Do they have some really big problems in that space? It, you know, we haven't seen proof that they've got it solved. Yeah. Um, that said, you know, I'd be pretty surprised if they weren't making enough progress on it to be able to do useful things with the cabinet in 2023. Yeah, interesting. Um, <clears throat> here, Mickey Ficky says, uh, what does James think about a way to monetize Dojo? Is it really, is it really feasible and what will the RO, ROI return on investment be, be, or will it be worth it? So um, another kind of angle or different kind of take on this is, um, as I see Tesla um, it seems like, you know, they're actually getting things to work with Dojo, investing more. They're seeing, they're seeing this as a legit um, platform for them to run their future training on. Um, it, it just hit me at, at, at AI Day where I'm like, oh, it's like it's more about Tesla taking their, their, their future AI into in, um, taking it um, into their own into their own hands, they're like basically owning the destiny of their future AI because mm -hmm. they won't be, um, they won't have to borrow, let's say, you know, compute from another service, or they, they don't have to be reliant on another company's architecture, or they're not susceptible also to competition, who can undercut them significantly in terms of compute power via mm -hmm. making their own chips that are, you know more efficient, et cetera, Tesla saying, hey, we're not going to risk any of that, you know, being too dependent or too susceptible, too vulnerable to others. We're going to create our own chips, our own structure. Um, to me, the, the dojo as a service, that to me is like, it's not the priority. The priority is, is, is securing the future, you know, of Tesla AI um, to get as much compu uh, training compute as possible at the lowest price that's actually custom designed for what they're mm -hmm. doing. It's almost like this um, 
it's Elon playing like 3D chess in a way, like you know, a few moves ahead of mm-hmm. anyone else. Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, it's like fascinating that he's, they're investing so much effort and money and right now, but it makes so much sense. It reminds me a little bit of the whole, put the FSE computer in all the Model 3s, mm-hmm. you know, early on, because we're going to need that. And it just seems like Dojo is another one of those like you know, big moves by Elon mm-hmm. to kind of future-proof Tesla AI. Yeah, it does feel very similar. Yeah, to it's so interesting. What's your kind of, any thoughts on, on that? It's, I think I, on the Dojo thing, it, uh, you know, I've described Dojo, you know, fundamentally as, as a, uh, te- Tesla investing in economical compute in the future. Uh, they've got a very, you know, their roadmap is very dependent on the amount of compute that they can get. And almost to the point where you can't have too much. You know, we, uh, when you get to the point where you're spending a billion dollars a month on compute, $10 billion a month on compute, like you want to be getting the most cost. Like you can afford to spend money to bring the cost of that stuff down. And it'll take time to really bring it down. If you look at the, it, the, the industry, uh, that is building systems that you can buy and put in your warehouse and run data on is not taking radical risks for the most part. Uh, the, the leaders are still basically incrementally iterating on, uh, on a platform which is not good at neural networks. And there, there doesn't seem to be a lot of movement by big players with deep pockets to like step off that train, right, and and do something radically different. So uh, Tesla's, in a sense, they're, you know, if you think of them as trying to compete against, you know, in the space for selling compute to other people, they're taking advantage of an opportunity. But another way of looking at it is just like they are, they're, uh, they have a lot of things that are vulnerable to whether or not these other companies perform. So yeah, they're they're taking control of their own destiny by by developing this machine themselves. You know, it. I'm kind of biased on this. Like for a long time before Tesla announced that they were building Dojo, mm. uh, to my acquaintances in the space, I was complaining that nobody was doing a, a Dojo kind of mm. thing. That nobody, that no, like there's so much potential to do better than what industry is doing right now. And yet when I look at the incentive structure for the players in the industry right now, they're not really, they already own this space and they don't want to disrupt it. They don't want to, you know, initiate the technology that causes them to lose all the business and some startup to get it or some competitor to get it. So they're all moving very carefully as they move forward. And that's robbing the rest of us, the rest of industry, of the really powerful platforms that we could have in five years or in 10 years. Uh, you know, so Tesla went and did that. Um, it's, yeah. uh, I'm, you know, once again, I'm really happy that they're doing it. I think... There's, it's not that there's nobody, you know, who's trying other things. Uh, There are a number of notable companies out there trying really different stuff, but they don't, they seem much more focused on making money near term, returning something to their investors than, you know, making the world a better place, scaling as fast as they can, taking big risks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, got it. Um, Elon mentioned at the beginning of AI Day how he thinks Tesla can make a, I forget the exact wording, but a significant or a contribution toward AGI. Um, what's your kind of take? Do you think that's premature to for Elon to, to, to think that Tesla will have a significant role? Or do you understand his perspective 
Like, you have to look at the way he framed it. Yeah, I would say. Yeah. Well, what, what? How would you interpret that? It. So, like, if you were working directly on AGI today, you would be looking at. You know, Jan LeCun recently uh, trotted out a white paper. I don't know if white paper research paper. Uh, it's in open review where he's basically saying you know, this is the set of all things that we might want to try doing to get an AGI working, right? There's this sort of research mm -hmm. component. I uh, As I understand what Elon was saying, it, it was basically, um, you need a lot of data, you need scale, um, we're scaling really fast, we're gonna have a lot of data. Um, there's a decent chance that AI uh, that AGI ends up being an emergent property of being able to get to big scale with big models. And uh, and if that's true, they will end up playing a role at some point because they'll be one of the players that has the scale and has the data to be able to like move the needle on, uh, you know, sort of getting over that phase change threshold where you, where you start having, you know, what... It's, I, AGI is a is a interesting topic because it gets defined a lot of different ways, and yeah. you can think of it a lot of different ways. So, it's hard to make accurate, you know, narrow statements about it. Yeah. I think that, you know, that what you know the way Elon frames it, and I agree with his mm -hmm. statement. That, uh, he, you know, I would say, you know, Tesla's not working on AGI. Yeah. Um, they may end up being a player because a lot of these other approaches, a lot of these things people are working on, they may converge as we move forward. Like AGI may be a convergence of a bunch of, a bunch of different things. And if you're a big player on one of the important things, then yeah, you'll be playing a role in AGI. Yeah. What do you think about this angle where um, you could, someone might be able to argue that Tesla, by being the so-called arguably the leader in real world, that this physical world AI that they're just gathering um, the the trajectory of how fast their data is growing is just growing faster than just any other a big AI player that's more focused on online. Because like online, you have like you know you're you're combing through texts and whatever images, but I guess you do some videos, but they're not like they're more like talking head videos, or they're not like it. You don't get the 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 resolution or the the 3D type of um, data that that Tesla is is getting, um, if you take project this five or ten years in the future, if Tesla continues to just radically um, gather more data at, at a faster pace, let's say, or their 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 rate of um, improvement of how much they're gathering data just increases so fast um, as they dive deeper into this, is there a scenario where Tesla actually just eventually outpaces other big AI players because of just the sheer amount of data combined with all of the other, you know, training, everything that they're doing? Um, so Tesla's getting a different kind of data than, than, uh, than other players are. And so that's a differentiator for them. Um, also, uh, Tesla's strength is not like having lots of data. It's being able to get a data to get. Um, I think I've said before, the FSD fleet is not a recorder recording engine. It's a search engine, right? You ask the FSD fleet for a bunch of stuff and it samples the world and finds those things and sends them back to you. The world has got so much data about so many things. 
trying to record everything and having this giant repository where when you have a problem, you have to go digging through this repository to find that is in many ways uh, less effective than, than having letting the world continue to be the data repository it already is and essentially having this mechanism that goes out and gathers the data that you need. That's how the data engine works. The data engine, you know, they, they, they had the parked car video on, on this thing. You know, they, they had a clip where there was a car parked and it was parked in a place where normally, in fact, when I first saw the clip, I thought the car was stopped at an intersection, but it was actually parked. And the problem they were trying to fix is they, they need a bunch of examples of weird intersections or weird places to park a car where it looks like it stopped at an intersection, mm -hmm. right? How obscure is that data? Like, how do you do that? But, you know, they... They, they gathered 13,900 clips like that of examples that they were able to sort of label and, and dump into the system. Uh, that's the search engine at work. Search the world, find these things. I need them. Send them back to me. Two weeks later, two weeks. Mm -hmm. You've got this data. You know, you, you filter it. You run it through the auto labeler now. You don't even have to send it to your army of labelers. It runs through the auto labeler. You put it in a thing and your problem is solved, right? That, yeah. The data engine is iterating on problems that you find, asking the real world for the data and bringing it in. So Tesla's data, you know, Tesla's differentiator is they're sampling the real world for data in real time. Now, in some sense, other entities have this, you know, um, like, you know, uh, Google can change a user interface element mm. and and see millions of people interacting with that user interface element and sample the world by essentially making a change. You know, they they have this interface to the world, which is their website, and they can gather lots of data. Like, uh, you know, they can change the way that that the rating system in YouTube works. And they have so many users out there that they can gather a lot of data on how that works really quickly. So like, it's not completely unprecedented for other entities to have this, but comparing it to like all the data that, that Google has gathered on YouTube, right? Or all of the, all, you know, all the tweets that Twitter has saved, you know, which is in this giant repository is a little bit different, right? Mm -hmm. Tesla's got an ability to say, if I interact with the world this way, statistically, how does the world respond back? You know, they can change mm -hmm. the behavior of the vehicles a little bit and then gather a lot of data on how that, on, on how that changes. And that's, you know, it's a, it's a kind of categorically different kind of data that they're able to gather in volume whenever they need. And of course, you know, they've got a big storage farm and they can store a bunch of stuff too. But I think a, a point that came up uh, on AI day was, uh, uh, I forget who it was that made this comment that like that the data in, that that Tesla uses that they have for training the networks, it actually is fairly ephemeral because they're constantly mm -hmm. feeding new data in mm -hmm. and then they're constantly taking out stuff that isn't as useful. So, you know, so they might label a clip, stick it in to solve a problem and add it to the system. And maybe that clip only lives in their data warehouse for like six months or a year. Because as they continue to refine the thing, they discover that, you know, that, that of the data that they collected, you know, three months ago, they, they you know, 25% of it, they no longer leave. So it gradually sort of, you know, it's not, it's not an ever-growing collection of data. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a uh, precisely sampled cross-section of the world the way that it is today, according to our best understanding of what we need to train the network. Mm -hmm sense. Um, I've got a bunch of uh, more questions um, 
especially with occupancy network. Um, seems like people are really interested in that compared to uh, LIDAR, mm-hmm. um, what's going on with NERFs. But we'll go ahead and cover that um, in our more technical deep dive uh, tomorrow. Um, I'll go ahead and wrap the video up here. Um, go ahead, I'll link to James's Twitter account and uh, check out the next few videos on this channel because they'll be fun with the technical details about AI Day. We're gonna go through some different slides that James has prepared and um, kind of, I would say dumb them down, but simplify them, trying to help the layperson understand what Tesla's doing with AI Day. Kind of like AI Day for dummies, but... Um, <laughs> But, a- a- AI day for non-specialists. Yeah, non-specialists. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, it's, I, one of the interesting things, like you look at the slides, people who aren't in the individual bins aren't going to know what the other bins are, exactly. by and large. Yeah, right? yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, sounds good.